This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. Welcome back to the Oanda Market Insights Podcast. Brought to you with the Jazz FM Business Breakfast. And available on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Johnny Hart. Each week we review the stories that made the business and market headlines. We know that moving too fast would risk shortening the expansion. We also know that moving too slowly, keeping interest rates too low for too long, could risk other distortions in the form of higher inflation or destabilizing financial imbalances. By the end of 2023, GDP is more than 10% lower in the disorderly scenario. The sharp fall in sterling, alongside with the imposition of tariffs, pushes up the cost of imports and overall CPI inflation peaks at 6.6%, with bank rate rising sharply to 5.5%. And today we're joined by our regular commentator, Oanda Senior Market Analyst, Craig Earlham in London, and from Singapore, Oanda Head of Trading Asia, Steve Innes. How are you doing, chaps? Really good, really good. Doing very well, thank you. An apt week to have you on, Steve. Plenty of global stories to ponder and uh, of course it means we don't have to talk about Brexit for at least 10 minutes which is always a bonus. Let's start with the latest comments from US Fed Chief Jay Powell. He said the Fed's benchmark interest rate was in his words just below the neutral level. I think two very important words there meaning the central bank was close to the point where it wouldn't be tapping on the brakes or indeed pressing on the gas. How did markets react to those comments, Steve? I think it was pretty clear cut here. The FOMC are making an unambiguous dovish transformation to um, the side of being completely data dependent. Uh, The market had some strange theories about it that the Fed was going to continue raising interest rates every quarter. There were some very, very hawkish opinions uh, in the marketplace. And uh, basically what Jay Powell did is even a week ago started to walk back these expectations. So I think one thing that's good here is the market uh, has some clarity about Fed policy in the sense that, yeah, we're not going up every quarter, but we're going to be incredibly data dependent. And I think what that does, in general, the US dollar doesn't have itself to anchor itself to the Federal Reserve anymore. So it's going to be relying on US data. Um, That could mean um, perhaps more negative downside. But in my view, what this means, it's going to be really predicated on external drivers. Uh, For instance, it'll be keying on issues like Brexit, uh, keying on issues like China slowdown. And I think this is where uh, U.S. dollar bulls are going to be looking for opportunities to buy the U.S. dollar. In the meantime, I think it's going to remain under uh, some pressure going into year end simply because of this dovish pivot by the feds. Craig, I mean, it's a bit of a turnaround from Powell, isn't it? Only last month he was saying that uh, we were a, a long way from neutral. Investors were pretty worried that the rate increases would sort of affect growth. It's a, a remarkable turnaround, really. Well, it's either a remarkable turnaround or it may just be a Fed chair who's new to the job, who's getting used to life as Fed chair, where every word you mutter is so heavily scrutinised that the slightest change in tone can be overly read into and cause a lot of market turbulence. So maybe he's just maturing in a very short space of time as Fed chair. Would he have had the same reaction on the markets had he said this two years ago when he was just another board member? I don't think so. So I think what he's done is he's come out, he's given the markets time to relax because he doesn't want to be seen as flapping 
every time the markets move uh, and responding to such a case. And he's given a very considered response to where he perceives interest rates to be. I don't think the Fed's position has actually changed in the last two months. I just think the message he's now conveyed has changed to reflect what the Fed is actually intending to do. And I don't want to necessarily... I, I know these uh, <laughs> these podcasts are always better when you debate, so it's it seems silly to just sit here and agree with what Steve said. But everything he said is, I think, perfectly spot on there with regards to where the Fed is moving next year, what the uh, main drivers now for the US dollar is going to be, and also the fact that I do expect uh, weakness now, uh, some softer dollar into year end and maybe early next year purely driven by the fact that i do think a lot of what the fed's now doing is priced in we could expect a bit of a slowdown in the data now for the u.s next year because the fiscal stimulus starts to wear off a little bit and i think all the currencies could now potentially come to the fore because if we do see some positive progress in brexit and it may seem a long way away now before we see that uh, because of the turbulence we've seen but if we do see a uh, pickup in the european data for example you would expect be reflected in benefits to these currencies which could come at the cost of the u.s dollar I thought I said we couldn't mention Brexit for at least 10 minutes. I did try. And you've, you've spoiled the rule. Uh, Steve, we, we had the Fed minutes um, on Thursday, and they certainly point towards the strong likelihood of another uh, quarter point adjustment in the rate target next month. That was in line with market thinking, despite the recent volatility. Yeah, I don't think they're going to pull off December. I think where the debate along the curve will start to unfold uh, is in March. That'll be the first test. Uh, for Fed policy. Chair Powell had himself in a very delicate situation, given the overtones that were made from President Trump, constant verbal intervention in the press. And I think it was a very much a struggle for him uh, in the sense that I think he was trying to indicate walking back some of these more hawkish elements. But I think the timing of um, Trump's basic assault uh, to the independence of the Federal Reserve Board really made them think about whether they should come across as dovish or actually hold the course. But I think in the sense, he just sort of bit the bullet and said, listen, I think the market's reading is far too hawkish. And I really do believe we have to walk some of this uh, hawkish elements back. And I think that's what they were trying to convey, um, which obviously came out in the Fed minutes, because that's the way the market read it. Yeah, I think the other thing to remember as well with the Fed is everyone looks at the, the tightening cycle from the Fed and almost assumes that the only form of tightening can be interest rate hikes. And I think one of the things that we've also seen this week uh, with reports that Steve Mnuchin's been having conversations as well is there's two forms of tightening that the Fed can do, one of which is very clear, which is the interest rate hikes, which attracts all the attention. The other is it's got this enormous balance sheet and it has been slowly unwinding these some of these positions from the QE programme by letting these bonds run out and effectively not repurchasing new bonds. So that's been slowly unwinding the balance sheet. But another thing they can look at is actually selling some of these bonds reducing their balance sheet at a quicker rate and that doesn't attract the same amount of attention as uh, interest rate hikes does it probably it will have less of an impact from an economic standpoint and also it will allow it to reduce its exposure from another side so this is another thing which i think we could be we could see become more prevalent next year so if we do see just one rate hike next year or maybe even two keep an eye on this other thing as well because i think they'll be looking at that as well the FTSE is down on friday afternoon investors are rather spooked by slower growth in china's manufacturing sector in fact uh, steve i i see you've been quoted on the bbc news business website um talking about manufacturing swerving as you call it oh so dangerously close to contraction territory 
you know, this is the real deal here. You know, this is the uh, world's second largest economy and uh, arguably the world's biggest manufacturer. This is a major issue uh, that could actually spook the market incredibly to think that Chinese economy is actually going to start moving into contraction territory. You have to remember that that 50 mark is sort of a cliff edge here. And if the economy goes down there, it's going to put the PBC, PBOC between a rock and a hard place in the sense that they're going to have to aggressively uh, move on monetary policy, something they don't want to do because of the implications it'll have on the currency. However, I now think they've got a little bit more wiggle room in the sense that uh, the feds have taken um, their foot off the gas pedal, so to speak, and maybe just tapped those brakes a little bit as far as interest rates goes. So I think this is going to be good going forward, uh, especially from the emerging market sectors, which including China, is the fact that this should create more capital investment uh, from foreign portfolio inflows simply because the stronger dollar narrative is not really conducive for imports or for investments into Asia. The stronger dollar tends to act like a wrecking ball uh, through Asian markets. And I think there's a big sigh of relief. We're starting to see more movement into the carry trade. And we're also starting to see more movement into the well-known baskets that are that are very much driven by equity sentiment, like the Korean won, for instance. So positivity with the, uh, with the Fed's uh, going a little bit neutral here. Meanwhile, we've got U.S. President Donald Trump and China's President Xi set to meet at the G20. Certainly the stakes are very high indeed. And we've had the usual uh, contradictions from Donald Trump just days before the summit. He said current levels on tariffs of uh, $200 billion uh, would rise as planned. But then just before taking off, he's told reporters that he wants to strike a deal. So uh, which President Trump do we believe, Craig? Yeah, I think we've always got to view Trump's comments through the prism of who they're intended for. I think he wants to convey the message that he's playing hardball with China uh, to the US media, to the US public, suggests that the pressure is being ramped up and I'm leading this and I'm going to dictate the terms of this deal and how it's going to go. But ultimately, he wants to ensure that Xi Jinping is on side. He wants to make sure that these discussions progress because if he comes back from the G20 with nothing, then he's going to have to follow through on these threats. And not in any way unintentionally, the first $50 billion of tariffs that were in imposed on China were imposed on an area that's not going to be too heavily impacting on the consumer. The next $200 billion had some consumer products in there, but again, not heavily impacting the consumer. If he has to follow through on these $267 billion of final ones, that's going to heavily impact the consumer in terms of the basket of goods that were involved there because it includes things like iPhones, which are one that he did note earlier on this week. And that's when you'll see the pressure ramp up because when people start to feel poorer, they're not necessarily going to have the same appetite for a trade war with China if China refuses to back down. Always look at this through who he's trying to send the message to. I think he definitely wants a deal. And I think what we're going to see is the hard talk before the summit, which is what we saw before the is meeting with Jean-Claude Juncker, for example. And then we see the other Trump that comes after the meeting, which is the, this was a fantastic meeting. We're great pals. We've really made some progress here. I really think we're going to see an incredible trade deal with China, the best trade deal that's ever been negotiated by anyone ever. And it's going to be brilliantly beneficial. We're going to see incredible trade between these two countries who are closer than they've ever been before. I think Craig hit the nail on the head in a couple of significant points. My view, however, is that the dinner, the decade is going to end up being the photo shoot of the decade in the sense that Trump's going to be gloating about this meeting. They're going to be shaking hands. There's going to be a lot of hoopla, uh, but whether 
there is any concrete solution given out from this meeting, it's very difficult to see that given the great ideological differences. It's, the divide is just too great. Um, when you look at the largest free economy and versus the largest state-driven capitalist economy, just divergent philosophies, divergent economies, nothing's going to get accomplished uh, this weekend. However, uh, the market, I, in my view, would be quite happy um, if they came up with a specific roadmap suggesting dialogue's going to keep solid. If we look in comparison to how the APEC summit ended in complete utter chaos with the um, hardline stance by Vice President Pence completely confounding everybody, I think this would be progress. Uh, my view how the market reaction is going to be is uh, that one way or the other, we're probably going to have a knee-jerk. It's going to be a very binary reaction. I think uh, positive or negative, we'll see the markets react accordingly on the equity markets. Negative outcome would be dollar stronger, vice versa on the opposite. However, I think both sides of the equation are going to be quite short-lived. And I think we get back to this long drawn-out process of trade war again, which is really going to start morphing around intellectual property rights and more so in the tech sector. We're starting to see signs of that popping up. And I think this is where the next battlefield is going to develop. And man, that's going to be quite a battlefield when you consider how much the uh, U.S. are accusing China of stealing on those intellectual property rights. And let's face it, this is how this all started. That $800 billion worth of theft that the president claimed uh, China was taking. So we really got to keep our eye on the ball uh, with regards to that. Despite us more or less focusing on this tit-for-tat trade war. There's more deeper issues rooted um, in the underbelly of these discussions. So I think we're still quite a long way. I think this is going to be in the headlines through 2019 and possibly into 2020. I wouldn't discount it, just like I wouldn't discount Brexit being in the headlines for another year. I've got to be honest, I would quite like to be a fly on the wall in these meetings because we do see the two sides to Trump before and after. I wonder what he's like in the middle. Like, Do you, do you think he is still the hard-talking man or once the cameras go away, do we get this nice sweet talker asking how his wife is, asking if he fancies a game of golf? Like, I always wonder what Trump's like in this middle part. Like, Is he a charmer? Is he? We don't get to see this. We just get to see the best friend and the worst enemy. I think there's two sides of him. I think there's Donald the dealmaker, and that's the businessman. So I think that's his true side. And then there's Donald the hawkish trade warrior. And I think this is just part of him trying to dominate, trying to get what he what his way. As we've seen him, his public persona is very much a person who wants to win. And I think that's the kind of way he's shaping U.S. politics. Although he says America first, I often wonder if it's really Trump first and America second, if you know what I mean. But I'll tell you, he is wielding such a big stick in the markets right now that a lot of stuff that he says can be completely destabilizing for markets. If we saw the reaction in oil markets uh, to um, to his move by increasing waivers and that had significant ripples through the markets. Likewise, on the interest rate front, and I'm sure there's going to be some significant after effects and aftershocks coming out of this um, dinner of the decade. The Bank of England has warned that a no-deal Brexit would trigger the worst UK downturn since the Great Depression. Uh, it was a nightmare scenario drawn up for uh, MPs. The bank has taken quite a bit of criticism over the last couple of days or so, looking at the data that they came up with. And I suppose this is the worst scenario. GDP down 8%, house prices falling by 30%, unemployment up, uh, the pound plunging by a quarter, driving inflation up to about six and a half percent and of course interest rate hikes as well but they did say that this was the worst 
uh, possibility, Craig, and they have picked up a lot of criticism, of course, from Brexiteers mainly, for those comments. Yeah, this this worst outcome, worst uh, case scenario seems to have fallen on deaf Brexiteers, to be quite honest. Well, it Once always again, will, though, won't it? Yeah, it just gets so heavily politicised, doesn't it? I mean, it wouldn't be much of a stress test if it was the expected outcome scenario. We've stress tested our banks, and do you know what? They can sustain a 2% fall in house prices. They can sustain cable fall into 125. They, yeah, I mean, they, they're not going to... They, what, what's the point? This is a stress test. It's meant to test how much banks can deal with. And if everything goes in worst case scenario sense if we get no re- no renewal of uh, trade deals uh, with the EU currently has in place we go to WTO rules we have barriers we have uh, queues at the borders we have all of these and none of these get resolved and we have to raise interest rates because the currency fall is so severe and on top of that we have no room for fiscal stimulus if all of these things line up which just because it's a possibility and it's like a 0.01% possibility they have to test that as the worst case scenario. Can the banks deal with this? Because if they didn't, and God forbid, a number of those things lined up, which they won't, but if they did, people would, the same people who are criticising the bank for apparent scaremongering would turn around to them and say, why weren't you prepared for this? This is your job. You're not doing your job. It's the politicians that have politicised the Bank of England, not the Bank of England themselves. And I'm sorry, but the pers- people to blame are the people who have insisted that the Bank of England release this report a week before, a week and a half before the vote itself. And that's the Treasury, and that's being led by uh, the by Theresa May. But then equally, on the other side, you've got these Brexiteers. And Jacob Rees-Mogg's this, comments this week were utterly disgusting, um, trying so much to berate the Governor of the Bank of England for his own political gain. It's just absolutely ridiculous that we are taking such an important institution for the UK and making them the scapegoat for something that is just quite frankly boring and it shouldn't be something that we should even be looking at this should have been a report that was given to the treasury and they should have dealt with it as they see fit i wish they'd never even published it but they've chosen to publish it and then that's the problem with this it's almost like it's cry wolf though isn't it because we've had a number of warnings before the referendum about the effect of a a leave vote would had that didn't come to pass so people don't believe the bank of england anymore no but these weren't forecasts again these were things that could happen these are as with all projections it's like it's a range of scenarios that could happen but naturally it's up to people to decide what they do with that information and when people want to make light of the information and make it out to be unreliable they take one extreme scenario and they say look this is what could happen this is why we should vote to remain and then someone else takes the same scenario and says look they're scaremongering they're trying to convince you that the worst case can happen in reality the actual what the bank of england thought was going to happen broadly happened and we haven't even left but that doesn't get as much publicity and that doesn't get as much attention from the people trying to scare us into voting to remain but equally it doesn't try and get as much attention from the people who are trying to drum up hatred towards the institutions and the establishment who want us to leave and that was two years ago but you're seeing the same things play out now this is why it's become so heavily politicised and this is why so many people just don't have the appetite for Brexit anymore or anything related to it because there is no sensible conversations happening anymore. Everything is about how can I draw hatred or fear. No one's interested in that anymore. Steve, you're over there in Singapore. What is the view now on our little local uh, difficulty uh, here with Brexit? Well, you know, we've been hoping it's going to leave the headlines soon, but we know it's not. (laughs) Where it becomes difficult in this market is dealing with a lot of noise. And that's the problem. And Craig was alluding to that. It's almost become politicized where it becomes out of the realm of quantified 
investment strategies. Obviously, the Bank of uh, England, as Craig correctly alluded, was pointing out worst-case scenarios. Traders do look at these worst-case scenarios and actually plot for eventualities of moves of sterling to trade below 125. That's part of a game plan. But what's happening right now, and it's quite troubling because of all this political noise, um, a lot of it's very. A lot of it doesn't have much credibility, and that's the issue. And what happens when uh, the market becomes almost what I refer to as a headline roulette wheel? Liquidity starts diminishing from the market. Investors don't want to be part of the part of the game. Traders have no interest in providing markets. Then what happens? We have one bad news, and we can have a massive drop that creates a complete panic around, like we've seen in the past. We refer to these these. Uh, you know, sterling crashes, gap traps, if you may. And this is a concerning part. The problem here is people's money, people's livelihoods are at stake. We have to be very careful and politicians should be very careful about, um, you know, jumping um, on headlines and, and manifesting these headlines because it can significantly impact equity markets, local equity markets. And that should be the politicians primarily primary um, view is to protect their constituents, not send fears running through their veins. Yeah, I like it is interesting the market reaction as well as you said and it's good to see that people in the markets are a little bit more level-headed as well because when this report came out there was no freaking out there was no pound dive uh, there was it came off a little bit around the comments um but ultimately the hysteria that took place in the media from both sides was way more severe than what actually happened in the markets because people took it with more of a level head uh, and realized that it was not a forecast Deutsche Bank, the German police raiding its headquarters in Frankfurt on Thursday as part of an investigation into whether it had helped criminals launder money through offshore tax havens. This is a massive blow, isn't it, Craig? Yeah, it is. I mean, this is not the first money laundering story that Deutsche Bank's been involved in this year, I don't think, uh, and certainly not in the last couple of years. It seems to be involved in a scandal every six months. It's hardly any surprise that the share price is now more than 90% off from its highs back at the uh, at the start of the financial crisis, 50% this year alone. It's extremely worrying, and it does seem that Deutsche Bank is just spiralling out of control towards uh, what could be a very messy end. And yes, the, the interesting thing about this is this was a raid of around 170 people and they say that there's two people involved in this. They've laundered illicit funds uh, through an offshore haven. It strikes me that there wouldn't be so many people involved in this if this was just a couple of people. I feel like this is going to turn into a much bigger story. They really do have a history of scandal and uh, mismanagement, don't they, Steve? Yeah, they really do. And I think it's uh, going back to these Panama Papers where the news broke again. Boy, do those papers have a, have some longevity. There's tracking all sorts of people and not to mention individual number one. President Trump has been mentioned in those papers also. But let's looking at this banking sector in general, not just Deutsche Bank, but look at Goldman Sachs implications with the 1MDB scandal in Malaysia, uh, which actually toppled the government. That's where there was misappropriation of funds and some massive payouts. And banks like Goldman Sachs were complicit in this. I don't think it's just the Deutsche Banks of the world. I think this whole financial center is in need of a dose of credibility. It seems that this happens every 10 or 20 years where we have these scandals break. Um, I think they have ways of keeping these down, but in this information age of technology overload, I think this information can be found out so quickly. And I think this is what's coming to the fore, i.e. with the release of the Panama Papers. 
getting back to Deutsche Bank, I totally agree. It's just bizarre how every month or two we we see some type of scandal go on. But it, it, I think this is a more deeply rooted situation. I just wonder how many other banks are involved but have managed to deflect a lot of these issues. I don't believe it's only one. I think there's a lot more complicit. And perhaps as we go through the next year or two, we may see this spread to a number of different names. So keep an eye out. Okay, before I let you go, guys, what are you looking forward to for next week? Craig? Yeah, there's so much next week, so we should definitely highlight it. There's naturally going to be the aftermath uh, of this G20 meeting. There's an OPEC meeting with uh, some non-OPEC members, including Russia, to discuss potential output cuts, which I think people are going to be very focused on, given the volatility uh, and the declines, more specifically, in oil uh, over the last uh, month or two. We've also got a lot of data. So we've got things like the US jobs report, which is always a highlight. And then we've got central bank meetings, the RBA, the Bank of Canada, both meeting to make interest rate decisions next week. So we're really, and that's on top of politics, right? Brexit's not going nowhere. uh, And obviously Trump. (laughs) Anything more you want to add, Steve? Uh, just basically oil prices. I think the far-reaching implications of uh, oil prices across multi-asset classes are going to be the key focus. And those far-reaching implications are going to keep traders busy next week. Steve Innes in Singapore and Craig Earlham in London. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Yoanda Market Insights podcast. We're back again next week. Don't forget, we're available on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. Have a great weekend. From the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.